Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Please support our independent journalism at democracynow.org. That's democracynow.org. Your donation will be matched dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. From Pacifica, this is Democracy Now! To introduce myself, I belong to a special tribe of what used to be called troubadours. Sometimes they were called minstrels. Now we're called songwriters. We work for, in our songs, a sort of a better world, a rainbow world. Now, my generation, unfortunately, never succeeded in creating that rainbow world, so we can't hand it down to you. But we could hand down our songs, which still hang on to hope and laughter. Today, we pay tribute to the blacklisted lyricist Yip Harburg, the man who put the rainbow in The Wizard of Oz, a Democracy Now! special. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Today, we pay tribute to Yip Harburg. His name may not be familiar to many, but his songs are sung by millions around the world, like jazz singer Abby Lincoln. Bing Crosby sang it. Ike Beck played it. And Yip Harburg wrote it. Built a railroad, made it run, made it race against time. Once I built a railroad, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? And Tom Waits. Judy Collins and Dr. John from New Orleans. Peter Yarra. Say, don't you remember? Don't you remember? They called me Al. It was Al. That's Al, Al Jolson. And our beloved Odetta. Don't you remember? I'm Can you spell a dime? Brother, can you spare a dime? May well be a new anthem for many Americans. The lyrics to that classic American song were written by Yip Harburg. He was blacklisted during the McCarthy era. During his career as a lyricist, Yip Harburg used his words to express anti-racist pro-worker messages. He's best known for writing the lyrics to The Wizard of Oz. But he also had two hits on Broadway, Bloomer Girls, about the women's suffrage movement, and Finian's Rainbow, a kind of immigrant's anthem about race and class and so much else. Today in this Democracy Now! special, we pay tribute to Yip Harburg's life. 
Ernie Harburg is Yip's son and biographer. He co-wrote the book Who Put the Rainbow in the Wizard of Oz, Yip Harburg, lyricist. I met up with Ernie Harburg at the New York Public Library for Performing Arts at Lincoln Center years ago, when they were exhibiting Yip Harburg's work. Ernie Harburg took me on a tour. In the first place, there's some uh, business about uh, words, and one of them is that uh, the songs, when they were written back in those days, anyhow, always had a lyricist and a composer, and neither one of them wrote the song. They both wrote the song. However, in the English language, you know, you have, this is Gershwin's song, or this is, they usually say the composer's song. I've rarely ever heard somebody say, this is Yip Harburg's song or Ira Gershwin's song. Both of them would be wrong. The fact is, two people write a song. So I'm going to talk about Yip's lyrics and then lyrics in the songs. Um, now, the first thing we're looking at here is uh, an expression, really, of Yip's philosophy and background, which he brings to writing lyrics for the songs. And um, th th what it says here is that songs have always been man's anodyne against tyranny and terror. The artist is on the side of humanity. Uh, from the time that he was born 100 years ago, in the dire depths of poverty that only the Lower East Side uh, Manhattan could have when the Russian Jews, about two million of them, got up out of the Russian shuttles and ghettos and the courageous ones came over here and, and settled in that area, what we now know as, as the East Village. And uh, Yip knew poverty deeply, and uh, he quoted Bernard Shaw as saying that the chill of poverty never leaves your bones. And it uh, was the basis of Yip's understanding of life as struggle. Let's go back to yeah. how Yip got his start. start. Yip was at a very early age interested in uh, poetry, and uh, he used to go to the uh, uh, Tompkins Square Library uh, to read, and the librarians just fed him these things, and he got hooked on uh, every one of the English poets, and uh, especially O. Henry, the ending. He always has a little great ending on the end of each of his songs. And um, he got hooked on W.S. Gilbert, the Babs Ballad, and uh, then when he went to Townsend High School, they had them sitting in the seats uh, by alphabetical order. So uh, Yip was H and Gershwin was G. So Ira sat next to Yip. One day, Yip walked in with uh, uh, Bab Ballads, and Ira, who was very shy and hardly spoke to anybody, just suddenly lit up and said, do you like those? And they got into a conversation. And uh, Ira then said, do you know there's music to them? And he said, no. He said, well, come on home. So they went to uh, Ira's home, which is on 2nd Avenue and 5th Street, which is sort of upper from Yip's poverty at 11 and C. And they had a Victrola, which is like having, you know, a huge uh, instruments today. And he played an HMS pinafore. Well, Yip was just absolutely flabbergasted, knocked out. And that did it, I mean, for the both of them. Because uh, Ira was intensely interested in the thing, too. Yeah. 
lifelong friendship. And Ira went on to uh, be one of the pioneers with uh, 25 other guys, Jewish, <laughs> uh, Russian immigrants, um, who developed the American Musical Theater. And it was only after, in 1924, I think, that Ira's first show with George Gershwin, his brother, uh, that they started writing together. Gershwin's Porgy and Bess in took a, 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 um, a kind of detour because when the war, World War I, came and it was a socialist and did not believe in the war, he took a boat down to Uruguay for three years. I mean, he refused to fight in the thing. That's shades of 1968 and the Vietnam War, right? And why didn't he believe in World War I? Because he was a full, deep-dyed socialist who uh, did not... Uh, believed that uh, capitalism was the answer to the human community and that indeed it was the destruction of the human spirit and he would not fight its wars and at that time the socialists and the and the lefties as they were called bolsheviks and everything else were against the war and so when he came back, uh, he got married, he had two kids, and he went to the electrical appliance business. And all the time, hanging out with Ira and George and, and uh, Howard Dietz and Buddy DeSilva and writing light verse for the FBA Conning Tower. And the, the newspapers used to carry light verse, every newspaper. There were about 25 of them at that time, not two or three now, owned by two people in the world, you know. Uh, and they actually carried light purse. Well, Yip and Ira and Dorothy Parker, the whole crowd had light purse in there, and they, they, you know, they loved it. So when the crash came and Yip's business went under, and he was about anywhere fifty to seventy thousand dollars in debt, uh, his partner went bankrupt. He didn't. He repaid the loans for the next uh, twenty or fifteen years at least. Um, Ira and he agreed that he should start writing lyrics. Let's yeah. talk about what Yip is most known for. Finian's Rainbow, The Wizard of Oz. Right here, what do we have in front of us? We have uh, a lead sheet. We are in the gallery of the Lincoln uh, Center for the Performing Arts. And uh, there's an exhibition called The Necessity of Rainbows, which uh, is the work of Yip Harbor. And we are looking at the lead sheet of Brother Can You Spare a Dime, which came from a review called Americana, which uh, in, it was the first review which uh, was um, 
had a political theme to it. Uh, at that time, the, the uh, notion of the forgotten man. You have to remember what the Great Depression was all about. It's hard to imagine that now. But uh, when Roosevelt said one-third of the nation are ill clothed, ill-housed, and ill-fed, that's exactly what it was. There's, there was at least 30% unemployment at those times. Uh, and among blacks and minorities, it was 50%, 60%. And there were bread lines. And uh, now the rich, uh, you know, kept living their lifestyle. But uh, Broadway uh, it, it was reduced to about 12 musicals. Uh, a year from a prior in the 20s, about 50 a year, okay? So it became harder. But the Great Depression was the dominant fact of life in everybody's mind. And all the songs were censored, I use that uh, uh, loosely, by the music publishers. They only wanted love songs or escape songs. So that in 1929, you had Happy Days Are Here Again, and you had all of these uh, kinds of songs. There wasn't one song that uh, addressed the depression in which we were all living. And this show, the Americana show, uh, Yip was um, asked to uh, write a song or, or uh, uh, get the lyrics up for a song which uh, addressed itself to the bread lines, okay? And uh, so he at that time was working very closely with Jay Gorney. Jay had a, um, a um, tune which he had brought over with him when he was eight years old from Russia, and it was in a minor key, which is a, a whole different key. Most uh, popular songs are in uh, major. And uh, it was an, a, a Russian lullaby. And it was da, 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 da. And uh, a, a Jay had, uh, somebody else had lyrics for it. Once I knew a big blonde and she had big blue eyes. She was big blue like that. And it was a torch song, which we talked about. And Yip said, well, could we throw the words out and I'll take the tune. All right. And if you look at Yip's notes, uh, which are in the book <laughs> that I mentioned, you'll see he started out writing a very satiric, comedic song. At that time, Rockefeller, the ancient one, was going around giving out dimes to people. And he had a, Yip had a satiric thing about, uh, can I share my dime with you, you know? But then, right in the middle, other images started coming out in his writings. And you had a man in a mill, and the whole thing turned into the song that we know it now, which is here and which I can read to you. And if you, if you do this song, you, you have to do the, the verse because that's where a lot of the action is. Can you sing it to me? All right, I'll try. It won't be as good as uh, <laughs> Big Crosby or Tom Waits. They used to tell, used me, to tell me I was building a dream, I was building a dream. and so, I, so followed I followed the mob when there was earth to plow, when there was earth to plow. or guns, or to, guns bear. to bear, I was always there, was always right there. on the job, right on the job. They, they used, used to, to tell me I was building, I was building a dream. A dream. With peace and glory ahead, 
Why should, Why should I, I be standing, standing in, in line? Just waiting, Just waiting for, bread. for bread. Once I built a railroad, made it run, made it race against time. Once I built a railroad, now it's done. Buddy, can you spare a dime? Yep, Harburg singing in 1975. Once I built a tower to the sun, brick and ribbon and lime. Once I built that tower, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? <laughs> when was this song first played? In 1932, and uh, in the Americana Review, every critic, everybody took it up, and it swept the nation. In fact, uh, paradoxically, I think Roosevelt and the Democratic Party really wanted to tone it down and keep it off the radio because playing havoc with trying to... Uh, not talk about the depression which everybody did you remember the hoover thing uh, uh, not only the happy days are here again but uh, two chickens in every pot and so forth nobody wanted to sing about the depression either you know yet yip harburg was a supporter of fdr Yes, uh, but politics are politics, you know, and uh, the thing was that, in fact, historically, this was, I would say, the only song that addressed itself seriously to the Great Depression, a condition of our lives, which uh, nobody wanted to talk about and nobody wanted to sing about. Ernie Harburg, son of Yip Harburg. When we come back from our break, we'll talk about The Wizard of Oz, Finian's Rainbow, and other shows. Two times of confusion like these, when all the world is a hopeless jumble and the raindrops tumble all around, heaven opens a magic lane. When purple clouds darken up the skyway, there's a lovely highway to be found leading from your window pane. To a spot behind the sun Just a step beyond the rain Somewhere over the rainbow Way up high There's a land that I heard of Once in a lullaby Somewhere over the rainbow Skies are blue And the dreams That you dare to dream Really do come true Someday I'll wish upon a star And wake up Where the clouds are far behind me Where troubles melt like lemon drops Away above the chimney tops That's where you'll find me Somewhere over the rainbow Bluebirds 
over that rainbow why then oh why can't i if any little bird can fly beyond the rainbow why oh why can't i this is democracy now democracynow.org the war and peace report i'm amy goodman as we continue with our democracy now special on our journey of yip harburg's life with his son ernie harburg ernie talks about how yip harburg wrote the lyrics to the wizard of oz actually yip did more than the lyrics when they were when yip and Harold Arlen were called in to do the score of The Wizard of Oz. It was uh, Yip who had this executive experience in his electrical appliance business and also had become a show doctor. So he, he was, uh, that is when a show wasn't working, you would call somebody in and try to fix it up. He had an overview of shows and he had an executive talent. And so he was always what they called a muscle man in a show, all right? And he'd already worked there. With Bert Lahr in and uh, a great song, the the Woodchopper's song. And uh, wait a second, Bert Lahr, the Lion. The Lion, uh, Bert Lahr, and most of these people were from vaudeville and burlesque. And uh, Yip knew them in the twenties, but he actually worked with Bert Lahr in this uh, uh, life. Uh, Walk a little faster, and another review. Um, I forget that name, but. Uh, he and Yip and Arlen gave Bert uh, songs to sing, which allowed him to satirize the uh, opera world, if you want, or the a send-off of, of Rich, you know. And uh, so they had that relationship. Also, Yip knew Jack Haley, the Tin Woodman. And uh, Yip also worked with Bobby Conley as a choreographer in the early 30s on his shows, who was also the choreographer for The Wizard of Oz. So he had a cast here with Arlen, who were, you know, sort of Yip's men, you know what I mean? So when Yip went to Arthur Fried, the producer, who was too busy to work on this musical, and Mervyn Leroy had nothing to do with it practically, because this is, he had never done a musical before. So it became a vacuum in which the lyricist uh, entered because he was already to do so. Yip was always an active, you know, organizer. And so the first thing he suggested was that they integrate the music with the story, which at that time in Hollywood, they usually didn't do. They'd stop the story and you'd sing a song, they'd stop the story and sing a song. To, that you integrate this. Arthur Freed accepted the idea immediately. Yip then wrote, Yip and Harold then wrote uh, the songs for the uh, 45 minutes within a 110-minute film of the Munchkin sequence and, and into the Emerald City and on their way to the um, Wicked Witch when all the songs stopped because they wouldn't let them do anymore, okay? Uh, you'll notice then the chase begins, you see. In the movie. Why wouldn't they let him do anymore? Because they didn't understand what he was doing, and they wanted a chase in there. So, uh, anyhow, Yip also wrote all the dialogue in that time and the setup to the songs, and he also wrote the part where they give out the heart, the brains, and the nerve, because he was the final script editor. And he there was 11 uh, screenwriters on that, and he pulled the whole thing together, wrote his own lines, and, and gave the thing a coherence and a unity which made it a work of art. 
but he doesn't get credit for that. He gets lyrics by E.Y. Harburg, you see. But nevertheless, he put his influence on the thing. And Who wrote The Wizard of Oz originally, the story? Yeah, Frank L. Baum was an interesting kind of maverick guy who at one point in his life was an editor of a paper in South Dakota. And this is at the time of the populist uh, revolutions or uh, revolts or whatever you want to call it in the, in the Midwest because the railroads and the, and the eastern city banks absolutely dominated the life of the farmers, and they couldn't get away from the debts that were accumulated from these. And uh, uh, Baum set out consciously uh, to um, create an American fable so that uh, the American kids didn't have to read those German grim fairy stories where they chopped off hands and things like that. You know, he didn't like that. He wanted an American fable. But it had this underlay of uh, political symbolism to it that, that the uh, farmer, the scarecrow, was the farmer. Uh, he, he thought he was dumb, but he really wasn't. He had a brain. And the Tin Woodman was the result, was the laborer in the factories who, with uh, one accident after another, he was totally reduced to a tin man with no heart, all right, on the assembly line. And uh, the cowardly lion was uh, William Jennings Bryan, who kept trying, was a big politician at that time, promising uh, to make the world over with uh, uh, the gold standard, you know. And uh, the, the wizard, or the humbug type, was the Wall Street uh, finances. And uh, the wicked witch was... Uh, uh, probably the railroads, but I'm not sure, all right? <laughs> so it was a beautiful matchup here with Frank Baum and Yip Harburg, okay? Because in the book, the word rainbow was never once mentioned. And you can go back and look at it. I did three times. The word rainbow was never once mentioned in the book. And the book opens up the, with Dorothy on a on a black and white world that Kansas had no color. Just read the first paragraph in it. So uh, when they got to the part uh, where they had to get the song for uh, the little girl, uh, they hadn't written it yet. They had written everything else. They hadn't written the song for Judy Garland, who was a discovery by one of uh, Yip's collaborators, Burt Lane. And nobody knew the, the wonder in her voice at that time. So they worked on this song. And at that time, Ira, Yip, uh, Larry Hart, and the, the others thought that the composers should create the music first. Now, they were both locked into, the lyricist and the composer were locked into the storyline and the character and the plot development. So uh, you, um, they both knew that at this point there was a little girl in trouble on the Kansas City environment, all right, and that she yearned to get out of trouble, all right? So Yip gave uh, Harold what they call a dummy title. It's not the final title, but it's something that more or less uh, zeroes in on what the situation is all about and what uh, this little girl is going to take a journey, all right? So Yip gave him a title, I want to get on the other side of the rainbow. Now here's what happened, and I want you to play this symphonically.
said, my God, Harold, this is a 12-year-old girl wanting to be somewhere over the rainbow. It isn't Nelson Eddy. <laughs> and I got frightened. And I said, I don't, I, it's a, let's save it, let's save it for something else, but don't, well, let's not have it then. Well, he felt his, his, he was crestfallen as he should be. And I said, let's try again. Well, he tried for another week, tried all kinds of things, but he kept coming back to it, as he should have, and he came back, and I was worried about it, and I called Ira Gershwin over, my friend, Ira said to him, he said, can you play it a little more in a pop style? Now we have to get a title for it. I didn't know what the title was going to be. And when he had... I finally came to the thing, the way I logicalized it. I want to be somewhere on the other side of the rainbow. And I began trying to fit on the other side of the rainbow. <laughs> when he had a front phrase like... Now, if you sang E, you couldn't sing E, 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 E. You had to sing O. That's the only thing that would get out. And I had to get something with O in it, see. Over the rainbow. Now, that sings beautifully. So the sound forced me into the word over, which was much better than on the other side. incredible music which if anybody wants to try it just play the chords alone not the melody and you will hear Paco Bell and you will hear religious hymns and you will hear fairy tales and lullabies just in the chords no one ever listens to that but try it if you play the piano top of these chords, then uh, Harold started the thing off with an octave jump. Somewhere, okay, and Yip had no idea what to do with that octave jump. Uh, incidentally, Harold did this in Paper Moon, too. Uh, if you remember, let's see, how does that start? It's only a paper moon <laughs> Sailing over a cardboard sea but it wouldn't be made-believe if you believed in me. Yeah, Howard was a great composer. Oh, so it's Yep wrestled with it for about three weeks. 
And finally, he came up with the word. You see, this is what a lyricist is. The word to hit the storyline, the character, the music. It's an incredible thing. Somewhere. All right? And then when you put it in an octave, you get somewhere. Okay? And you jump up, and you're ready for take that journey. All right? Where? Over the rainbow. Okay? And then you're off. Uh, it's uh, it's not a love song. It's uh, a story of a little girl that wants to get out. She's in trouble and she wants to get somewhere. Well, the rainbow was the only color that she'd see in in uh, Kansas. She wants to get over the rainbow. But then Yip put in something which makes it a Yip song. He said, "And the dreams you dare to dream." really do come true you see and that that word dare lands on the note and it's a perfect thing and it's been generating courage for people for years afterwards you know This was supposed to be an answer, MGM's answer to uh, uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And uh, of about ten major critics at that time when Wizard of Oz came out, I would say only two liked the show. The other eight said it was corny, that it was heavy, that Judy Garland was no good, and so forth. Oh, yeah, you can read again in the book, Who Put the Rainbow in the Wizard of Oz by uh, Harold Meyerson and Ernie Harburg. And, uh, but it persisted, you know? And then in 1956, when television first started saturating the nation... More than 20 years later. More than 20 years later. They, I don't think they even had their money back from the show, see? Um, they, uh, MGM uh, sold the film rights to CBS, who then put it on. And it hit the top of the, it broke out every single record there was. And it's been playing every year since then. And, of course, it went around the world. And it's become a major art work, which is, I must say, an American artwork. Because the story, the plot with the three characters, the brain, the heart, the courage, and finding a home is a universal story for everybody. And uh, that's an American uh, kind of story, all right? And uh, Yip and Harold put the, uh, these things into song. Who did the Munchkins represent? We Oh, in the, you mean political thing? I think they, they represented the little people, you know, the, the people. And uh, that's the way uh, they were, uh, it came on in the book. You see, the book, if you're a purist, you wouldn't like the film. It's just like anything else. There are societies of uh, people who meet and discuss the, the uh, books. Okay, There's even a society for the Winkies, which are the guards around the Wicked Witch's uh, 
uh, you know, it's canceled. There really is. They meet once a year, and they're serious. And they don't like the picture because it didn't follow the book. Because Yip and the writers changed it, as Hollywood will. Was the book a little bit more favorable to the Winkies? Uh, no. Well, yes. The Winkies were good people, and they were played up there. If you go back and read the book, you will see that they were a lovely, decent kind of uh, people. Yes. That was one thing. I guess it wasn't PC there, you know. But in other words, when you read a good novel and you see the film, there's hardly any relationship between the two. All these uh, lines from a film have entered the American language in a way that people don't even know where they came from. You know, uh, gee, uh, Toto, uh, it looks like we're not in Kansas anymore. Or, uh, you know, uh, come out, come out, wherever you are, which in the 70s started taking on uh, when the, um, the gay movement started. This line started meaning different things, you see. Come out, come out, wherever you are. So the songs keep growing with the times people interpret them, you know? How did you feel in late 1950s when it was a hit, when people started hearing it all over the world? Well, I think they were quite surprised, along with the film moguls, you know, and the fact that it, years and years later, he and Harold both uh, said that they did not know what depth and strength that uh, that song, Over the Rainbow, had. Now, also, one other one, the song uh, Ding Dong the Witch is Dead is a, a universal liberation of freedom, a, a cry for freedom, you know, uh, which um, uh, isn't seen like that. But it, it, one time when some uh, tyrannical owner of an airline's uh, company stepped down, all the employees started singing Ding Dong the Witch is Dead. <laughs> People use these words, and during the war, World War II, uh, we're off to see the wizard was sung uh, by troops uh, marching, you know. So, that, but nobody knows that Yip wrote the words. It's a, now, Harold wrote the music, and the songs were Yip and Harold. That's right. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. If you'd like a copy of today's show, you can go to our website at democracynow.org. Back in a minute. Last night, when we were young, love was a star, a song unsung, life was so
that shone so bright ages ago last night to think that spring had This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we continue on our tour through the life of lyricist Yip Harburg with his son, Ernie Harburg. We're walking through the gallery here at the uh, Lincoln Center uh, for the Performing Arts, which uh, has the necessity of rainbows, which dedicated to the works of uh, Yip Harburg, the lyricist. And we're now looking uh, at the various exhibitions and while we're looking for Finian's Rainbow, I want to tell you that in 1944, Yip conceived and co-wrote the script and put on a show called Bloomer Girl, which was a uh, way ahead of its time because Bloomer Girl was Dolly Bloomer, who was an actual suffragette in 1860 who stood up and invented pants. And it was radical in those days. And the, the show was about Dolly Bloomer. And she ran an underground railroad bringing slaves up. And she had an underground paper. And she was an incredible woman. And this was a political show. Some great songs in there. Maureen McGovern does Right as the Rain in a great way. Lena Horne does uh, uh, Eagle and Me, which was the first song on Broadway that wasn't a blues lamentation about the black-white situation. It was a call to action. Uh, we gotta be free. The Eagle and Me. Okay. And Dooley Wilson, who was in Casablanca, signed that. Again, Yip managed to get his philosophy into his show, which was the second truly integrated American musical after Oklahoma. And uh, while, you know, it has been played around, it still marked that historically. After that came... You, you mean, you mean uh, blacks and whites playing in the cast? Uh, no, not in there. In Finney's Rainbow... I mean that it was a political statement. Bloomer Girl was a political statement, and uh, and it was a smash hit. In 1946, Yip conceived the idea, the story, the script for Finian's Rainbow, which was meant to be an anti-racist and, uh, in a in a certain sense, anti-capitalist uh, uh, show. Also, let's find it. All right, let's, let's find Finian's Rainbow. There's Cabin in the Sky, which is the first all-black uh, Hollywood film in the 40s, which Yip and Harold did also. Happiness is just a thing came, uh, called Joe. Here's Bloomer Girl that I'm talking about. So we should be 
somehow coming onto Finian's rainbow. Um, but here's Yip. <laughs> Here, there is a video of Yip talking if you want to meet the man. You got into political trouble in this country at a time when a lot of people got into political trouble during the McCarthy years. Were you blacklisted? Thank God, yes. <laughs> during the McCarthy period, were they actually going through your lyrics with a fine-tooth comb looking for, for lines that might be subversive, that might show uh, Yip Harburg's true political colors? Yes. I wrote a song for Cabin in the Sky, which Ethel Waters sang, and was part of the situation in the picture. It was a poor woman who had nothing in life except this one man, Joe. And she sang, It seemed like happiness is just a thing called Joe. It seemed like happiness is just a thing called Joe. One of the Finian's Rainbow at last uh, and uh, this was you've conceived this in 1946 and uh, Fred Sadie who was his co-script writer and uh, Harold Arlen demurred from writing this because he felt that it was uh, uh, Yip was too fervent in his political themes and he wanted to, Harold wanted to do something else so Yip uh, got Burt Lane and then came out this great, great score from uh, Rainbow, uh, Old Devil Moon. That you stole from the skies, it's that old devil moon in your eyes. Yeah, you and Lacamora, etc. But the theme of Finian's was a total fantasy, and it was an American fable. Uh, in which an Irishman and his daughter come from Ireland, search around, and find Rainbow Valley in Mississippi. okay? And uh, he believes that if he plants the crock of gold, which he stole from the leprechaun, in the ground, that it will grow, just like at Fort Knox, right? <laughs> the whole thing was fabulous.
How were things in Glockamara? Is that little brook still leaping there? Does it still run down to Donnycombe? the uh, southern white senator, a very uh, stereotypic part, finds out that Finian has this land and tries to run him out of town because there's blacks and whites living together in the, you know, the sharecroppers, and uh, they claim that Finian's daughter is a, is a witch, and they're going to burn her at the stake, and all sorts of, you know, incredible things that uh, say something about the American scene. But the score was so great that uh, people who see it do not see it as a socialist tract, which is the only one on Broadway. They see it as a a very, very entertaining um, musical and unique in American musicals because in the first place there are very, very few musicals which are uh, original. Uh, Most musicals are adapted from books. And this was just uh, conceived by Fred Sadie and um, and Yip as a uh, satiric send-off on the American um, society. So you've got this great song in here, When the Idle Poor Become the Idle Rich. How are you going to know who is who, who is which? Okay. Yeah, like that. Finian's Rainbow has become a classic. Now, it's interesting that Finian's has not had a tour, a national tour, since 1948, but they play it in every single high school in the United States three or four times a month in every state of the Union. So Finian's was at the time, 1947, when a Cold War was beginning and the House Un-American Committee was starting up and they were searching for lefties. And uh, by 1951, Yip had been blacklisted from any chance to do any of the wonderful shows in, uh, that they did in Hollywood, Dr. Doolittle, Treasure Island. He was uh, blocked from working there. And then he was blocked from going into radio and into um, TV. So, and this is an historical fact which uh, Yip himself says, Broadway, the American theater in uh, New York City, was the only place where an artist 
could stand up and say whatever he wanted, provided he got the money to put the show on. So for Finian's Rainbow, they had to have 25 auditions because they said it was a commie red thing. And finally they got the money up and they put the, the show up. But by that time, Yip was blacklisted. And um, his next show was Jamaica with, with Lena Horne, which is an all-black cast. Oh, one other thing in terms of Yip's drive for um, uh, racial ethnic equality. And that is that uh, Finian's Rainbow in 1947 was the first show on Broadway where the chorus line consisted of blacks and whites who uh, danced with each other and the, the, the chorus was an integrated uh, affair. What happened to him during the McCarthy era? Well, uh, he could not uh, work in on any major film uh, that they wanted him to work on from the major studios in Hollywood. Uh, the setup was that uh, Roy Brewer, who was the head of the Yahtzee Union, I, I'm sorry to say that, uh, was the one who... What do you mean? Uh, well, I mean, this is a stagehands union. I, I'd like to say good things about unions, but they get bureaucratized and they go right wing, you know. They get bad. This was a bad leader. And uh, he he uh, uh, terrorized all of the Jewish moguls who were being accused of communism by the House on American Activities Committee, and they yielded to whatever he said to them out of fear that they, they would get uh, branded as communists or that they boycott the film, all right? And so when, uh, you know, they, they weren't called yet been to do uh, um, Huckleberry Finn with Burt Lane, uh, then Roy and the guys said, no, he's on our blacklist, okay? And you can't hire him. And then Yip went away, and they wanted him to work on uh, Dr. Doodle. No, you can't hire him. And the same thing for radio and TV. That was known as a, quote, blacklist, which wasn't, that was the first use of the term, because in small towns where you had company corporations going, if you did something that the company didn't like, you were blacklisted from town. You couldn't get a job in town. But this was the first time, due to the technology, that a blacklist was national and accompanied by a loaded word, communist, that could get you fired any place. For Yip, it was horrible because the, uh, his friends who were artists suddenly had no income. And uh, there was suicides, there was divorces, there were people who left the country, there were people whose lives were just ruined. And so Yip supported some of them. Uh, Dalton Drummond, who was one of the Hollywood Ten who were first picked out by the House on American Activities Committee to uh, go to jail for a year, citation, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party, you know? Um, Yip uh, fronted him with money and so forth. It was a horrible time. How long wasn't? How long couldn't Yip work for? For about uh, from 1951 to 1962, he came back to Hollywood. 1962, and he and Harold Arlen did Gay Paris, which is with Judy Garland. She asked them to come back, and uh, it's a cult uh, animated cartoon now, which you can get in your video. <laughs> and uh, I remember him putting on a show at the Tabor Auditorium. Uh, welcome back, Yip, you know, and he, <laughs> in 62. But that means that 
the Wizard of Oz made it big during the time that he was blacklisted. That was, and when you consider the social commentary that it was making, that's pretty profound. Yeah, but I don't think hardly anyone knows the political symbolism underneath the Wizard of Oz because, again, it's a thing that happens in Finian's Rainbow, even though, as Peter Stone, a noted playwright on Broadway, said it's the only socialist track ever on Broadway. All right? People don't hear the political message in it, okay? They are vastly entertained. And the same thing happens with the wizard. You know, no one would even think of such a thing. My song, like when the idle poor become the idle rich, and brother can you spare a dime, caused a great deal of furor during a period in Hollywood when a fellow by the name of Joe McCarthy was reigning supreme. And so they got something up for people to take care of us, like me, called the blacklist. And I landed on the enemy list. And in order to overcome the enemy list, what was the enemy list? Well, it's one that you were a red, another one that uh, you were a, a blue nose, and the other one that you on the blacklist. Finally, I thought the rainbow was a wonderful symbol of all these lists. Of all these lists. In order to overcome the enemy list and this rainbow that they gave me the idea for, I wrote this little poem. Lives of great men all remind us greatness takes no easy way. All the heroes of tomorrow are the heretics of today. Socrates and Galileo, John Brown, Thoreau, Christ and Debs heard the night cry down with traitors and the dawn shout up the rebs. Hmm. Nothing ever seems to bust them. Gallows, crosses, prison bars. Though we try to readjust them, there they are among the stars. Lives of great men all remind us we can write our names on high and departing leave behind us thumbprints in the FBI. Today's program was actually produced for radio in 1996 with Errol Maitland and Dan Coughlin. Special thanks to Gary Helm, Brother Shine, and Julie Drissen. Democracy Now! is produced by Mike Burke, Renee Feltz, Aaron Monte, Nermeen Shake, Steve Martinez, Sam Alkoff, Hani Masood, Robbie Karen, Ryan Dever, Adina Gazderman, Al Khan, Mike DeFilippo, Miguel Naguera, Engineer. Special thanks to Becca Staley, Julie Crosby, Nick Gilla, Hugh Grant, Jessel Noor, Jessica Lay. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us. Feel really